Hello, everybody, and happy end of 2018 to you. I'm just recording an improv episode after a reflection I had. I realized today I learned so much in 2018, and a lot of that learning was centered around the podcast Time Off and these incredible guests that not only gave me their time to have conversations, but they passed over their wisdom most importantly, their directives or actions that I could try out to find more time off for myself. And I was just reflecting on the ones that I put into action and the value that was there. And just wanted to share those with you so that maybe when you're thinking about how to close the year or how to progress in the new year, maybe some of these directives resonate with you and you can give them a go. And at the very least, maybe you go back and listen to that episode and find something of inspiration for yourself. And then I'm going to end the episode with a gift of a manifesto that I think is just very powerful and does a better job than I ever could of talking about the value of time off and rest and peacefulness, if you will. But nonetheless, let's dive into the 10 or so things that I've put into practice that have allowed me to find deeper meaning and time off. So our first episode on the podcast was with Jake Knapp. He's a successful designer who was with Google Ventures for a long time. And he also was a co-author of Sprint in his most recent book, Make Time. And Jake and I had a fantastic conversations of the many tactics, over 75 of them to be specific, on how to make time for the things that matter to you. But two of them I put into practice, and one was a distraction-free iPhone, or just a distraction-free smartphone. And that means really thinking about what apps should be on there. And for me, it was eliminating the ones that send me a lot of notifications. It was also eliminating the little red badges on my phone so that when I look at my phone, it doesn't look like I have hundreds of notifications. And getting rid of things that tend to have an endless stream or what Jake and John, the two authors, call infinity pools of content. I just got those off of my phone and that allowed for a lot more peacefulness instead of looking at my phone, which was many times a day, that it didn't seem like I had a bunch of urgency on it. It was just there and I could choose to either use an app or not use an app. And I found that just limiting notifications and endless streams of information on my phone allowed me to be off of it more and do more things that matter to me. And then the second thing Jake mentioned, which is also in his book, Make Time, is a winding down routine at night. So an hour or two hours before you go to bed, have a wind down routine that gets you away from screens, that relaxes your body and mind and muscles, maybe drink some tea, maybe take time to read book and candlelight. But Whatever works for you, I think the, the point was creating a routine of winding down to get ready for sleep rather than going straight from a very active mind into trying to go to sleep. That's been very effective for me, and thanks to Jake Knapp for being the first guest on Time Off. Check out his book, Make Time. I highly recommend it. Then I talked to Tiffany Schlain, who is a incredible filmmaker, writer, 
and founded the Webby Awards. She does a lot of amazing stuff. But I had her on the podcast for the concept of the Tech Shabbat that she came up with. And summarized, a Tech Shabbat is from Friday afternoon or so, and then all the way to Sunday, going without technology devices or digital devices. You have to listen to the podcast to get all the details of it, but I wanted to try it out with someone I am dating, and we did it, and it was powerful, and we can't wait to do another one. And ours took definitely a bit of preparation. We had to let our VIPs, our very important people, know ahead of time that we were not going to be on phones or iPads or computers. Her and I walked to dinner. In fact, it was kind of amazing how many times we just lost track of time and had to guess what time it was. It felt like I was a kid again and kind of amazed how I was able to coordinate as a teenager without all of these devices that we have today. But the Tech Shabbat is what it's called. But for me, I might rebrand the version that I did, which is mainly about getting away from just notifications. So it was a weekend of anti-notifications so that my phone was in airplane mode, put in a drawer, iPad, computer, and went without any of those on my person and just enjoyed a weekend. And being away from notifications for two days or so makes those two days feel way longer than two days, which over the course of a weekend is a wonderful way to balance out a week of deep work. So thanks to Tiffany Schlein for the Tech Shabbat, and I highly recommend your own version of it. Darius Faro, who is a writer, thinker, was on the podcast, and we talked about the quality of thinking time. And I thought that he had a very practical non-woo-woo approach to meditation, and his was just quality, silence, deep thinking time. And on the in our conversation on the podcast, he challenged the concept of how often do we actually schedule time to just think? I mean, I challenge you, go look back at your calendar of the year. When did you have a time slot on your calendar that was labeled something like time to think or thinking time? or reflection time, where it's just you, maybe in a quiet room, likely in a quiet room, just thinking. Maybe it's with a keyboard. I did mine with pen and paper, and I simply just sat there, thought, and wrote some things out, gained some new perspective, zoomed out. And it had a profound impact to the point where I make that a part of my weekly routine, is to have thinking time scheduled on my calendar. And it's not to answer emails, it's not to multitask, it's to sit there and think, and think about what you think is worth thinking about. For me, a lot of what I thought about, just to give an example, was the question, what's working and what's not working? Of all the efforts I had on my plate, and all the task and task approach I was doing, what was working, what was pushing the needle, and what was just busy work that wasn't getting anything done? And I found that that frequent check-in allowed me to learn a lot about myself, the ideal environments, and the ideal times of when I should have deep work. But also, I started seeing patterns of the type of work I would subscribe to that was not effective. For example, I would try to market things before they were made. And 
maybe that's just because I like storytelling and marketing. But instead, what I did was ship something, and it then makes it very easy to then market it. So through that thinking time exercise, I was able to notice a bad pattern in myself that I'm now addressing. So thanks to Darius for highlighting the importance of thinking time. Then I had Ivan Cash on the podcast, who is a artist, a cultural architect, if I was to call him something. And he's done a bunch of amazing experiences and experiments in society that I don't even have time to start describing you. You just have to listen to the podcast episode. But there's a thread of all of Ivan's interesting social experiments, and and it has to do with the power of strangers. And what I walked away with from what I learned from Ivan putting into practice is realizing that in any moment that we're out in the world, strangers are really gifts right there in front of us waiting to be unwrapped or unlocked. And that if you could, let's say, two times out of 10 that you look down at your phone in public because you're bored or something like that, look away from the phone and fill that boredom with sparking up a conversation with a stranger. It sounds simple, but if you actually put it into practice, the world opens up to you in an absolutely fascinating, wonderful way. At the best, random opportunities will land on your plate. At the worst, you will realize how kind most of humanity is, and that just increased my optimism of the world we live in. So thanks to Ivan Cash and all of his work in reminding me and us that strangers are powerful influences if we are just brave enough to make them strangers no more. Then I had John Zeratsky, where we talked about his sailing journeys with him and his wife. John also was a co-author of the book Make Time with Jake Knapp. He's also a designer that has worked at YouTube, Google Ventures, very talented, and now he spends most of his time sailing and writing. And we talked about a number of things around how do you plan for making time off? And John is has many of ideas on how to make time and make the most of your time, but I, I resonated with this concept of a someday fund. And when I asked him, how did you plan you and your wife to quit your jobs, leave San Francisco, and sail the world? And his answer was having a someday fund and being disciplined around contributing to that someday fund. And a couple of things I put into practice was to be more conscious on some of my spending, whether that's monthly subscriptions to software that I'm not really using and getting rid of those or making my coffee at home versus the bad habit of always going to a coffee shop that has some kind of markup. I started really questioning some of the expenses that add up. And instead of allowing those to just burn cash, set up my own little version of a someday fund for some of the things I want to do someday. So an example is one of the things I want to do someday is to go for several months to likely somewhere in Spain to work underneath some chef or some hospitality guru on cooking Spanish tapas. And roughly speaking, I think I could achieve that with around $10,000. And so I have a someday fund allotted to where I am contributing a small amount every month to that fund 
to someday do that. And John goes in depth about that someday fun on the podcast. And whatever it is you want to do someday, I challenge you to start thinking about the financial planning so that in a year or several years, through a very easy discipline, that someday fun becomes a one-day fun where you actually go and do that. Then I had the honor of speaking with Kevin Kelly, who was the founding editor of Wired Magazine, just an incredible mind around predicting technology. And we talked mainly about the importance of unlearning or learning how to learn, which he believes is in the art of unlearning, and I agree with him. We talk about a lot of things ranging from artificial intelligence and how it will unlock a lot of creativity for us, the importance of going on sabbaticals. But one thing that Kevin said that had a profound impact on me that I've been doing my best to direct in my life ever since is rather than having an opinion on a emerging technology, to try it out first. So in a way, I told myself, I'm not allowed to have an opinion unless I've interacted or used that technology myself. This could be VR, this could be a social media app, this could be uh, self-driving cars. Whatever it is, I'm guilty of it myself, of just having an opinion on something without even trying it. And Kevin said we would probably be in a much more advanced world if we were better at that. And so I think within the new year, with all the exciting technology that's being developed, Try to refrain yourself from having an opinion on it until you've tried it. Again, at the worst, you'll try it. You won't like it, and then you'll have a valid opinion of it. But you win in that scenario because you've tinkered with it. You've tried it, and that may open up your mind towards the possibilities of tomorrow, and it may make that technology not as scary, for example. So I think that's a great way to practice unlearning is to try something out before you have an opinion on it. Then I spoke with Mike Sturm about the concept of work-life harmony, which summarized is rather than seeking work-life balance, which is this like zero-sum game of balance, to actually find harmony between your work life and your personal life. This is something that I put into practice that has been incredible in terms of a therapy practice. What does that look like? Well, I tend to keep my work to myself. And after my conversation with Mike, his concept was, in his case, his wife is sort of a stakeholder in his professional life. So they're partners that live together and have a family, but he looks at her as a stakeholder and takes that very serious. So I looked towards... People in my life, friends, family, or someone I'm dating, and the ones that I I really value and have a lot of trust around, to start considering them sort of board members or advisors on the things I have at work. So instead of me putting a blanket on top of all of the good and bad things going on at work, you know, the usual like, hey, John, how is Project X going? I'd be like, oh, it's going good. That's not really the the right answer I found. It's I can actually bring something up that's top of mind. Maybe it's a, a small win that I can talk about and celebrate with them. And that it just makes me feel good and motivates me to keep going. Or I may have something that's challenging that's on the top of my mind. And by bringing that up, they can provide some perspective or analogous inspiration on how I might overcome that hurdle. 
So maybe in the new year with the work you have, think about how you can incorporate some of the people around you as stakeholders so that in that time off when you're having food or you're hanging out having a coffee or a beer with someone catching up, that, yeah, you're not necessarily just going to talk about work the whole time, but feel free in that time off to act like you're talking to an advisor so that you can gain perspective on something that's going on in your work life. One of my favorite books this year was It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work, which is from the Basecamp team. And I got to speak with Jonas Downey, who is a designer who works for Basecamp. And Basecamp's culture, which I'm a fan of, has really questioned a lot of the modern American work style. One example is Basecamp has a very flexible approach to their workspace, meaning the majority of their teams are remote and occasionally come into the office if if necessary. But safe to say that their default majority is that people work from wherever it is that is best for them to work. I've certainly come to believe that, at least in my own work, that most collaborative offices are factories of distractions. And it's nothing against the human beings there. It's just really hard to get some deep work done, uninterrupted work done in a space where it's really hard to tell if someone's in deep work mode or you know they just want to have small talk. And that, that was something that I thought Jonas recommended on our discussion on how if people are feeling like they're not able to get work done at work, that they could experiment for advocating for more flexibility with their work environment and where it is they, they work. And so maybe trying to convince your teammates or maybe your leader to just try one remote day for a week or maybe for a few few weeks and show them that if it makes sense for you that by working at home or working from a library or working from a canoe, I don't know what, what, what gives you the best environment for work, but whatever it is, you probably deserve to have that more often to produce better work. Point is, try to advocate for a small approachable change on a new way of thinking about work environments. I'd be interested to see how that goes for you and reach out to me if you have success in that because I think that there's a lot of momentum around the concept of remote working and the data showing its success rather than just everyone defaulting to saying everyone should come into an office. It's a topic I'm, I'm really passionate about and looking for more feedback from people that have found ways to practice it in, in unique ways. So give it a go. Find what space works the best for you for your deep work. Because ultimately, that's what we all want from each other, is us doing our best work. Then I spoke with AI expert Max Frenzel. Really enjoyed our talk. He works in AI. He's worked in quantum computing. He's an amazing writer. He really values time off and the concept of rest and deep work. And we talked about all of that on a recent episode. So... It was really hard for me to choose one of his pieces of advice to put into action because many of them I have and they've had a profound impact. But the one that he reminded me of that I had forgot was the benefit of going on an aimless walk. This could be in the morning. This could be in the middle of the day to split up your working day into two components. But 
Walk out your door. Just start walking. Don't have a destination in mind. Take a right, take a left, doesn't matter. Just go on a walk and let the mind wander. It might sound very simple to you, but the more I've done it, I feel like the universe has become my co-creator in a lot of my ideas. And it's just a very simple approach that not only relieves some stress, gets you moving, and I found allowed my subconscious or whatever other invisible thing outside of my conscious that I have no term for starts doing work for me and just provides a breakthrough idea. So give it a go. Go on a walk, no destination, and let me know how that turns out for you. And the last episode, we had Cassie Holmes, who's an expert in looking at what drives our happiness more, money or time. In short, her amazing body of work says time. People that focus on time are happier. And I'm still tickled by and fascinated by this concept of all of us are used to a checking account for our finances. You know, we have X amount of dollars in our checking account at X bank, and we live our lives accordingly to keep that in there for as long as possible and put more into it uh, for spending needs. But what does that look like for you with time? What if you had a bank account of time? I really, really wish that we had the equivalent of that, but we don't know when we're going to die, so that would be a little hard. But you can come up with creative ways of how are you spending your time? What transactions, if you will, are taking the most of it? And is that healthy? Is that good? Are there other activities and spaces that you would rather invest that time capital, if you will, on? But back to actionable advice, Casey had, sorry, Cassie, Cassie Holmes, had a profound research project where she talked about a study where they challenged workers to treat their weekend, not as a weekend, even though it's still Saturday, Sunday, but instead of treating it like a, quote, weekend, to treat it like a vacation. Approaching it like a vacation, certain things change. You want to make the most of it. You're very aware of how you spend your time. You want to do something that is a a diverse activity, uh, something that breaks the cycle of what you usually do. And that could be a weekend outing to an adjacent town or city for camping. It could be going on a athletic endeavor with some friends, or it could be something like I did recently of a technology Shabbat where I just walked around the city of Austin, which I know very well, but instead of driving around in an Uber and a car, just walking around and discovering it in a new way, just like you would if you were on vacation in a city you've never been to before. So it definitely had a interesting impact on my happiness and fascination with my local community by just simply telling myself that this weekend is a vacation. 
So those are some actionable directives that I put into place myself from the guest from Time Off's 2018 calendar. I hope that one of them was interesting to you and you may give it a go. And again, I'm just grateful for the individuals that took the time to talk to me and encourage me actually on my, my journey here of discussing this topic of time off. I have a lot of interesting experiments I want to do in the new year. I have one more thing for you, and that is an audio excerpt of something called Lazy A Manifesto, which derives from author and illustrator Tim Kreider. And I've heard a lot of friends and colleagues say how busy they are, this concept of busyness, being overwhelmed by work, there's not enough time. And that's at the heart of why I'm working on this podcast and the book, Time Off, and maybe even one day conferences, but a movement on trying to balance out busyness or maybe even an antidote to it. That just because you're, quote, busy doesn't mean that you can't control that or that it has to be that way. And I thought that this Lazy, a manifesto, audio clip, does an amazing job of helping you think about whether it's worth being busy or not, and what that means, and what time off might look like for you. So I want to end this Lazy, a manifesto. If you live in America in the 21st century, you've probably had to listen to a lot of people tell you how busy they are. It's become the default response when you ask anyone how they're doing. Busy. So busy. Crazy busy. It is, pretty obviously, a boast disguised as a complaint. And the stock response is a kind of congratulation. That's a good problem to have, or better than the opposite. This frantic self-congratulatory busyness is a distinctly upscale affliction. Notice it isn't generally people pulling back-to-back shifts in the ICU, taking care of their senescent parents, or holding down three minimum-wage jobs they have to commute to by bus who need to tell you how busy they are. What those people are is not busy, but tired, exhausted, dead on their feet. It's most often said by people whose lamented busyness is purely self-imposed. Work and obligations they've taken on voluntarily, classes and activities they've encouraged their kids to participate in. They're busy because of their own ambition or drive or anxiety, because they're addicted to busyness and dread what they might have to face in its absence. Almost everyone I know is busy. They feel anxious and guilty when they aren't either working or doing something to promote their work. They schedule in time with friends, the way 4.0 students make sure to sign up for some extracurricular activities, because they look good on college applications. I recently wrote a friend to ask if he wanted to do something this week, And he answered that he didn't have a lot of time, but if something was going on, to let him know, and maybe he could ditch work for a few hours. My question had not been a preliminary heads-up to some future invitation. This was the invitation. I was hereby asking him to do something with me. But his busyness was like some vast churning noise through which he was shouting out at me, and I gave up trying to shout back over it. 
I recently learned a neologism that, like political correctness, man cave, and content provider, I instantly recognized as heralding an ugly new turn in the culture, plan shopping. That is, deferring committing to any one plan for an evening until you know what all your options are, and then picking the one that's likely to be the most fun, or advance your career, or have the most girls at it. In other words, treating people like menu options, or products in a catalog. Even children are busy now, scheduled down to the half hour with enrichment classes, tutorials, and extracurricular activities. At the end of the day, they come home as tired as grown-ups, which seems not just sad, but hateful. I was a member of the latchkey generation and had three hours of totally unstructured, largely unsupervised time every afternoon. Time I used to do everything from surfing the World Book Encyclopedia to making animated movies to convening with friends in the woods in order to chuck dirt clods directly into one another's eyes, all of which afforded me knowledge, skills, and insights that remain valuable to this day. This busyness is not a necessary or inevitable condition of life. It's something we've chosen, if only by our acquiescence to it. I recently Skyped with a friend who'd been driven out of New York City by the rents and now has an artist's residency in a small town in the south of France. She described herself as happy and relaxed for the first time in years. She still gets her work done, but it doesn't consume her entire day and brain. She says it feels like college. She has a circle of friends there who all go out to the cafe or watch TV together every night. She has a boyfriend again. She once ruefully summarized dating in New York. Everyone's too busy and everyone thinks they can do better. What she had mistakenly assumed was her personality, driven, cranky, anxious, and sad, turned out to be a deformative effect of her environment, of the crushing atmospheric pressure of ambition and competitiveness. It's not as if any of us wants to live like this, any more than any one person wants to be part of a traffic jam or stadium trampling or the hierarchy of cruelty in high school. It's something we collectively force one another to do. It may not be a problem that's soluble through any social reform or self-help regimen. Maybe it's just how things are. Ethologist Conrad Lorenz calls the rushed existence into which industrialized, commercialized man has precipitated himself and all its attendant afflictions, ulcers, hypertension, neuroses, etc., and, quote, inexpedient development, unquote, or evolutionary maladaptation brought on by our ferocious intraspecies competition. He likens us to birds whose alluringly long plumage has rendered them flightless, easy prey. I can't help but wonder whether all this histrionic exhaustion isn't a way of covering up the fact that most of what we do doesn't matter. I once dated a woman who interned at a magazine where she wasn't allowed to take lunch hours out lest she be urgently needed. This was an entertainment magazine whose raison d'etre had been obviated when menu buttons appeared on remotes so it's hard to see this pretense of indispensability as anything other than a form of institutional self-delusion. Based on the volume of my email correspondence and the amount of internet ephemera I am forwarded on a daily basis, I suspect that most people with office jobs are doing as little as I am. More and more people in this country no longer make or do anything tangible. If your job wasn't performed by a cat or a boa constrictor or a worm in a Tyrolean hat in a Richard Scarry book, I'm not convinced it's necessary. Yes, I know we're all very busy, but what exactly is getting done? Are all those people running late for meetings and yelling on their cell phones, stopping the spread of malaria, or developing feasible alternatives to fossil fuels, or making anything beautiful? This busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. 
Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy, completely booked, in demand every hour of the day. All this noise and rush and stress seem contrived to drown out or cover up some fear at the center of our lives. I know that after I've spent a whole day working or running errands or answering emails or watching movies, keeping my brain busy and distracted, as soon as I lie down to sleep, all the niggling quotidian worries and big-picture questions I've successfully kept at bay come crowding into my brain like monsters swarming out of the closet the instant you turn off the nightlight. When you try to meditate, your brain suddenly comes up with a list of a thousand urgent items you should be obsessing about, rather than simply sit still. One of my correspondents suggests that what we're also afraid of is being left alone with ourselves. I'll say it. I am not busy. I am the laziest, ambitious person I know. Like most writers, I feel like a reprobate who does not deserve to live on any day that I do not write. But I also feel like four or five hours is enough to earn my stay on the planet for one more day. On the best ordinary days of my life, I write in the morning, go for a long bike ride and run errands in the afternoon, and see friends, read, or watch a movie in the evening. The very best days of my life are given over entirely to uninterrupted debauchery, but these are, alas, undependable and increasingly difficult to arrange. This, it seems to me, is a sane and pleasant pace for a day. And if you call me up and ask whether I won't maybe blow off work and check out the new American Wing at the Met or Ogle Girls in Central Park or just drink chilled pink minty cocktails all day long, I will say, what time? But just recently, I insidiously started, because of professional obligations, to become busy. For the first time in my life, I was able to tell people with a straight face that I was too busy to do this or that thing they wanted me to do. I could see why people enjoy this complaint. It makes you feel important, sought after, and put upon. It's also an unassailable excuse for declining boring invitations, shirking unwelcome projects, and avoiding human interaction. Except that I hated actually being busy. Every morning my inbox was full of emails asking me to do things I did not want to do or presenting me with problems that I had to solve. It got more and more intolerable until finally I fled town to the undisclosed location from which I'm writing this. Here, I am largely unmolested by obligations. There is no TV. To check email, I have to drive to the library. I go a week at a time without seeing anyone I know. I've remembered about buttercups, stink bugs, and the stars. I read a lot. And I'm finally getting some real writing done for the first time in months. It's hard to find anything to say about life without immersing yourself in the world, but it's also just about impossible to figure out what that might be, or how best to say it, without getting the hell out of it again. I know not everyone has an isolated cabin to flee to, but not having cable or the internet turns out to be cheaper than having them, and nature is still technically free, even if human beings have tried to make access to it expensive. Time and quiet should not be luxury items. Idleness is not just a vacation, an indulgence, or a vice. It is as indispensable to the brain as vitamin D is to the body, and deprived of it, we suffer a mental affliction as disfiguring as rickets. The space and quiet that idleness provides is a necessary condition for standing back from life and seeing it whole, for making unexpected connections and waiting for the wild summer lightning strikes of inspiration. It is, paradoxically, necessary to getting any work done. Idle dreaming is often the essence of what we do, writes Thomas Pynchon in his essay on sloth. Archimedes' Eureka in the bath, 
Newton's apple, Jekyll and Hyde, the benzene ring. History is full of stories of inspirations that came in idle moments and dreams. It almost makes you wonder whether loafers, gold brickers, and no accounts aren't responsible for more of the world's great ideas, inventions, and masterpieces than the hardworking. The goal of the future is full unemployment so we can play. That's why we have to destroy the present politico-economic system. This may sound like the pronouncement of some bong-smoking anarchist, but it was in fact Arthur C. Clarke, who found time between scuba diving and pinball games to write Childhood's End and think up communication satellites. Ted Rawl recently wrote a column proposing that we divorce income from work, giving each citizen a guaranteed paycheck, which sounds like the kind of lunatic notion that'll be a basic human right in about a century, like abolition, universal suffrage, and eight-hour workdays. I know how heretical it sounds in America, but there's really no reason we shouldn't regard drudgery as an evil to rid the world of, if possible, like polio. It was the Puritans who perverted work into a virtue, evidently forgetting that God invented it as a punishment. Now that the old taskmaster is out of the office, maybe we could all take a long smoke break. I suppose the world would soon slide to ruin if everyone behaved like me. But I would suggest that an ideal human life lies somewhere between my own defiant indolence and the rest of the world's endless frenetic hustle. My own life has admittedly been absurdly cushy, but my privileged position outside the hive may have given me a unique perspective on it. It's like being the designated driver at a bar. When you're not drinking, you can see drunkenness more clearly than those actually experiencing it. Unfortunately, the only advice I have to offer the busy is as unwelcome as the advice you'd give the drunk. I'm not suggesting everyone quit their jobs. Just maybe take the rest of the day off. Go play some skee-ball. Fuck in the middle of the afternoon. Take your daughter to a matinee. My role in life is to be a bad influence, the kid standing outside the classroom window making faces at you at your desk, urging you to just this once make some excuse and get out of there. Come outside and play. Even though my own resolute idleness has mostly been a luxury rather than a virtue, I did make a conscious decision a long time ago to choose time over money, since you can always make more money. And I've always understood that the best investment of my limited time on earth is to spend it with people I love. I suppose it's possible I'll lie on my deathbed regretting that I didn't work harder, write more, and say everything I had to say. But I think what I'll really wish is that I could have one more round of Delancey's with Nick, another long late-night talk with Lauren, one last good hard laugh with Harold. Life is too short to be busy.